Good evening. Good evening, everyone. Nice to see you. Welcome. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. With my mouth, I will greatly extol the Lord in the great throng of worshipers. I will praise him. Let's stand to worship God and sing together the words of all my days. Let's pray together. Let us pray. What an amazing thought that you are the Lord of history, that you direct the heart of the king like water in your hand, that even though we are seemingly in the hands of politicians, leaders, movements of history, you are working out your good plans and purposes. You are the sovereign Lord. 
And you have revealed yourself to us as our Father in heaven. That the Lord who sits on the throne is our Father. And we come in the name of our mediator, Jesus. The one who humbled himself so much and yet was ex- has been exalted so high because of all that he lovingly did to the glory of the Father on our behalf. We thank you for him, Jesus, Savior. We draw near to you through him. We who have sinned against you time after time, we who have known much grace and much forgiveness and fallen down many times, and yet once again we come to you for forgiveness, that you lift up our head and bring us into your presence and reassure us that there will come a time when we will not sin again and we will have no reason to repent for you will have made us perfect like yourself. We look forward to that. Help us to hate sin and love righteousness. Help us to die to sin and live for God. Help us by the power of your spirit to do these things, to please you and to know your spiritual will for us in all spiritual understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're, we're reading through um, the book of Numbers in the evening, and Bernard has a rather challenging passion to read. Is that right, Bernard? No. Well, we're not going to read it then. <laughs> Looks like I'm going to have to read it. Numbers 15. From verse 22. Okay. Numbers 15, verse 22. Now, if you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands to you through him from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come, and if this is done unintentionally, Without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, along with its prescribed grain offering and drink offering, and a male goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community, and they will be forgiven. For it was not intentional, and they have brought to the Lord for their wrong an offering made by fire, and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and aliens living among them will be forgiven because all the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. But if just one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make an atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally. And when atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. One and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether he's a native-born Israelite or an alien. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. While the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, The man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. That is, this is the word of the Lord. 
This is a severe word of the Lord to read. Um, I would say two things in response to this. If you are shocked at this, but not shocked at your own sin, you have not understood the seriousness of sin. And if you have not understood the seriousness of sin, then you have not fully understood the seriousness and glory of forgiveness. And the second thing I would say to this, um, there's many other things I would say, but the second thing I would say to this is if you are, as we all are, shocked at um, this summary judgment for righteous judgment for sin, he deserved it in a very real sense. We should be even more shocked for the judgment that Christ bore who did not deserve it. Okay, let's leave it at that. And uh, if you have any issues about that, we can speak to you afterwards. Uh, as they say, go to Will. He was laughing loudest. Notices. Um, okay, I've got them up there. Yeah, this is the congregational outing towards the end of the month. And um, if you want more details uh, and you haven't heard about some of the announcements, then speak to me or to anyone who was here this morning, but in particularly to Samuel Delahaye, who's kind of organizing it. Um, we're looking for help with baking. And this is at, uh, the money there is, a, um, what is it, an estimate, as it were. If you want to give something, that will help pay towards the use and the hire of the facilities. But if you have problems um, financially, let us know and we can help you out, okay? Um, other thing to say is that uh, Colin, leader of the band, is looking for more people to be involved in the music ministry. If you are an instrumentalist or a singer and uh, wish to help out on the rota basis, please speak to him. Um, nobody ran forward this morning, but maybe tonight somebody might. Um, pray about it. You can be used in this way and will be appreciated. I think these are all our notices. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray. We look forward to the week ahead, and for many it looks challenging. We look forward to the week ahead, and for many there are blessings to be found. How can this be both challenging and blessing? Well, only you know, Lord, and it's true. Help us to accept it and to remember one another as we bear each other's burdens. We do remember those who walk in darkness where their faith has taken a hard hit and they are struggling in weakness in the midst of trial, thinking that although it says in Scripture <laughs> trials are to test the faith which like gold uh, is more precious than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. They're thinking to themselves that their faith is more like coal that's easily burned away in the trial. Help them, Lord. Pray for them that their faith will not fail. Bring them through the darkness to your light. Help them to know that Though they may lose their grip on you, you never lose their grip on them. No one can pluck them from your hand. And your will and your purposes will prevail, even in the midst of many, many trials. Remember those who face illness week by week. Those who care for those who are unwell and face the cares week by week. We pray for encouragements, like a drink of water in a dry and parched place, refreshment from your Holy Spirit, a lifting up of the heart to you and the eyes to heaven, and the hope that one day, even though there may no be 
prospect for betterment in this life, that one day there will be betterment. And it will seem, in comparison to the weight of glory, light and momentary troubles. So help us help one another. And as we pray and wait in this time of waiting for you to lead us to a pastor that you have appointed, we pray that you'll help us to be kind to one another, to bear one another up, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, to teach one another, and not to devour each other. Will you help us to have faith and to wait patiently for you to reveal yourself to us? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing Psalm 12 um, together, and as we sing this, your offerings will be received. Um, and we're going to sing this to the tune Kildonan. stand again and sing uh, the hymn, Lord, you were rich beyond all splendor.
visiting with us tonight. Welcome. Um, we're going through <clears throat> the book of Nehemiah. And if you want to turn up to page 489 in the church Bibles, we're going to read together chapter 5. And that's the passage that we are considering tonight. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves and houses. And also the usury you are charging them the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. We'll give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. 
Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. At this the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took forty shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, a hundred and fifty Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, poultry were prepared for me, and every ten days an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor, because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, O my God, for I have done for all I have done for these people. Amen. Well, in October 1936, in the hostilities of the Spanish Civil War, the nationalist general Emilio Mola and his supporters besieged Madrid with four columns of troops. Mola claimed he had additional troops within the city. And this was reported in the New York Times like this. Police last night began a house-to-house search for rebels in Madrid. Orders for these raids apparently were instigated by a recent broadcast over a rebel radio station by General Emilio Mola, who stated he was counting on four columns of troops outside Madrid and another column of persons hiding within the city who would join the invaders as soon as they entered the capital. And then later another newspaper said... Out of hiding came a few of the phantom fifth column, the fascist auxiliary force dreaded by the loyalists. And from that event in history, we get that phrase, the, the fifth columnist. Um, the, the, the phrase of uh, signifying the enemy within that you don't know about. In church and in personal life, we need to be aware of the tactics of the enemy of our soul. He either comes like a lion, roaring with violence and brutality to persecute from outside, or he comes like a deceiving serpent to sting with lies from within. The persecuted church in our day often warns the unpersecuted church of the West of the two, of, that of the two dangers, violence or lies, the greater danger is far more often untruth. Departing from the gospel rather than persecution because of the gospel. And they would sooner have the violence than the destruction of the church from within. Now, as we're looking through the narrative of Nehemiah's memoirs, just look at the flow where chapter 5 fits in. Chapters 4 and chapter 6, there is the opposition that comes from outside. But in Nehemiah 5, we see the danger that comes from the inside. Here we see the problems that face the people of God have actually come from the people of God. Verse 1 and verse 6. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry. Or verse 6. When I heard their outcry on these charges, I was angry. An outcry has arisen. It's the language of Exodus. The story of the slaves who cried out, to, to, to God and their cries had come to the ears of God and God sent a deliverer and rescued them. But unlike that time, today the poor people are crying out against their own brothers in the family. 
Okay, let's pause there and just apply this first thought. Um, Danger from within. I have been noticing, as I'm going around folks and speaking to folks, that in this time of vacancy, the big problems that face us come from within. By definition, a vacancy is a time of uncertainty, and different people react differently to uncertainty. In the stress and strain, I want to propose to you that we need even more grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Minor differences of opinion, which might have been graciously dealt with in a less stressful time, tolerated better, as it were, can lead to major fallouts far quicker. We need more grace. And we need to repent if any of us have a secret desire to use this time as an opportunity to finally get all that I want in this congregation or in this service. Or finally get rid of all I don't want in St. Peter's. That's not what this time is for. And if we have that attitude, it will burn us. God is calling us through Nehemiah 5 to repent of being the problem from within, the fifth columnist, and to seek to be the solution within. More prayer, more love, more care. Paul says, love does not seek its own. Seeking our own can destroy St. Peter's more effectively than any outside persecution could do. We need to be extra gentle and gracious with one another. Not, as Paul said, biting and devouring lest we end up being destroyed by each other. You know, we're praying every Sunday for the the man whom God has prepared and is now preparing for his people here. There's another side to that prayer. Let's remind ourselves that God has been preparing and is also preparing his people for this man. Are you aware of that? And are you submitting to the need for self-preparation? Or you are thinking, well, look at me, there's none quite like me, none quite like us. Anybody who comes here will be awfully well done to to come to, to this great congregation. There's not much we need to do to change and prepare. He'll have to accept us just as we are, and we know that we're pretty good, aren't we? Well, let me just challenge you then. Are you welcoming strangers and visitors in this church? Or are you using this time of stress and uncertainty to run to your friends and bolster up your inner partnerships and friendships? Are you doing hospitality without grumbling? Or are you just serving yourselves? Are you praying still for the lost and seeking ways that we can reach the unconverted? Or are you attending more to your own spiritual and religious comfort? Are you seeking out how you may serve? Or are you sitting back complaining and grumping that no one is noticing your needs and meeting them. If any of those things fit, there might be an outcry to God because of you. Nehemiah rebukes us, as the word is supposed to do. But he also encourages us. Let's look more detail at what the story is about and the issues that are involved. The burden of my message is all about grace. Um, The first half of this uh, passage is about disgrace, (laughs) the disgrace of the rich. And the second half of this passage is about the display of grace in Nehemiah. So there we go. uh, We've had one point. These are points two and three. So the disgrace um, that we're seeing against the poor by the rich. Now in the law of Moses, there was a command not to charge interest to a brother. Do not charge your brother interest, whether on money or food or anything else that may earn interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but not a brother Israelite, so that the Lord your God may bless you in everything you put your hand to in the land you are entering to possess. God's people are allowed to loan out money or food 
or clothes or the produce of their land. They may even lease out their land until the time of Jubilee every 50 years when it is returned because their land is their inheritance and it's allotted by the lot, as it were, when, when they entered the land. Each family, each tribe had their own portion and lot and it belonged to the Lord and not to the people, but they could let it out and get rent and get money towards it. They are not allowed to charge interest or to enslave their brothers. They are to remember the gospel that they live by. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. There's the word of the gospel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. God's people were redeemed out of the land of slavery to belong to God as his treasure. If you look at verse 13, how does God see his people? His house. In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions, he says. God sees his people as his household and his treasured possession, valuables. You're enslaving a brother. Even to charge interest on a loan to a brother is an offense in the house of God, says Nehemiah. It is a disgrace to the covenant community. It is an offense against God's valuables, his possession, his jewelry. Um, He charges them in verse 9, if you look at that there. What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? They have wandered from walking in the fear of the Lord. They have forgotten that other gospel word which says the fear of the Lord is the beginning or the head of all wisdom. Lose the fear of the Lord and you lose the source and the ongoing power of the saved life. They're no longer walking in fear. They don't have the reverence that uh, motivated Nehemiah not to charge. They've lost that and lost the life of the gospel. So the nobles and the officials broke the law. In some instances, they applied the strict letter of the law. They weren't doing anything wrong necessarily, but they went beyond it. It is lawful to lend. But it's obvious in this story that it went well beyond the law. They demanded what the law did not require and what God forbade. Um, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil doesn't sound like 1%, doesn't sound like much. It was 1% per month, aggregated, 12% APR. I mean, not that I know anything about finance, but you, you, you put that on and it's a big burden on top of paying back a loan on the land. You don't own the land anymore. You don't even own the project, produce of the land. You are slaves on the land and you've got no hope of getting out of that poverty. It's a disgrace for God's people. They were part legalists and part lawbreakers. They're showing the bipolar opposite to grace. Legalist one moment, applying the law. Antinomian the next moment, denying the law. They applied the law when it suited them and they disregarded the law and said it doesn't apply to us when it didn't suit them. They are a disgrace. Well, how are we a disgrace? Or how do we dis the grace of God in our time? Beware of people who say, there are no rules for the Christian to follow. Rules are for the Old Testament. Grace is for the New Testament. But beware too of the busybodies who will teach you in minute detail what other Christians should do, should not do, and so deny our Christian freedom. I want to turn with you to um, Paul's letter to Titus. It's page 1198 if you want to look it up. Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. This is a helpful passage when you're thinking about grace and law and how they fit together and legalism and uh, denying that there's a place of rules, as it were, in our life. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no 
to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Grace teaches the lawbreakers or the law deniers to say no. It doesn't tell them. It teaches them. It's not another law of grace. It's an educator. It is an encourager. Jesus, in other words, it's personified of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, in his grace, teaches lawbreakers say no to wickedness, to ungodliness, to worldly passions, and say yes and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Be eager to do what is good. Grace teaches the legalists. It's not a matter of rules. It's a matter of eagerness to do what is good. All the way through Titus, if you've got time to look through it, good works come back again and again and again. Be devoted to doing what is good. The times are short before our Lord comes again. If you remember the word of grace, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. You will live by grace which teaches you to say no to wickedness and makes you eager to do what is good. You avoid the bipolar opposite of grace. And there's another verse um, with regard to grace that I want to, to bring to you again from Paul. 1 Corinthians fifteen, 10. I'll just read it. It's just one verse. By the grace of God, I am what I am, he said. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. An amazing verse. It was through grace that Paul worked harder than all the other apostles. You would think the law would make you work harder. No. Grace made Paul work harder. Grace teaches lawbreakers that we need to work hard at doing good. And here's a consideration. Paul knew so much more of grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, than others. He was the theologian of grace, after all. And one of the reasons he knew so, so much was that he worked so hard. If he hadn't worked so hard, he wouldn't have received so much grace. And both go together. Um, the effect of grace in his life was that he worked harder and harder and harder. By grace, he received much more grace. And by suffering so much also, um, he received grace to help in his time of need. Grace. Well, do you want more grace? Don't, dis don't disrespect grace. Be good to the poor, to those that can't repay you. And then we come to the second half, verses 14 to 9, the display of grace in the life of Nehemiah and his team. Um, there's another thought that's linked to this story, and that link word is the beginning of verse 14, moreover. It's not like it's and in another time, because he moves from, as it were, the immediate to standing back and thinking about his whole governorship and saying, moreover, from uh, the time I was governor, the 20th year to the 32nd year, 12 years, here's my story, my example of grace. They took what they weren't entitled to in the law. Nehemiah refused to take what he was entitled to. Isn't that what it says in the story? Nehemiah was the governor. He was entitled to be supported as the governor with a food allowance. Previous governors had gone beyond that. It looks like they imposed an illegal money tax on top of what was their due with the food. It was a fair amount of food, though. I mean, goodness, how many people? I mean, an ox is not a small, small cut. You go, in, go into the butchers up the road and say, can I have an ox uh, today? I mean, that's more than their stock that's sitting out there. It's a long time to get through that. But what's that every week? <laughs> he says, you know, one ox, six cheap, choice sheep, not... Uh, Unchoice, but and some poultry, <laughs> paltry poultry, 
Um, they were prepared for me and wine in abundance. That's not a cheap thing. But that was what they were due. Nehemiah didn't take that. There was no illegal demand for money. And in his grace, he did not demand what he was owed. And it says in verse 15, as we referred to earlier, that he did this um, out of reverence for God. I did not act like them out of the fear of the Lord. And the other reason he didn't do it was compassion. The burdens, verse 15, were heavy on the people. Or, verse 18, the demands of a governor were heavy on this people. He didn't want to be a heavy burden to the people, for he had compassion upon them. And instead of lording it over them, as the previous lot had done, he served them. And in verse 16, we see he devoted himself to the work on the wall. There's even more grace involved in this. And not only did he refuse to claim his rights to a food allowance because of his fear of God and care for the people, he bore the cost himself for feeding 150 Jews and officials and visitors above that from the outside every week. That is some catering bill. Neither took what was due to him, but chose to spend his own wealth because he worshipped God, the fear of the Lord, and had compassion for the people's burdens. This is a display of grace. Now, let's turn to a couple of New Testament passages that again help us um, throw additional gospel light on what we're seeing in, in Nehemiah 5. Romans 13, and this is page 1140 in the Church Bibles. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Here's Paul. <laughs> Paul's gospel. Here's the, the fifth gospel. This is my gospel to you. He's, he's given the word of the gospel. This is the application side of it. By the time he gets to chapter 13... And here's one of the applications that flow from the gospel of grace. He says, let no debt remain outstanding except the ongoing debt to love one another. Love one another. He who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, Paul could have preached that to the nobles who had disgraced themselves. Um, he would have rebuked them with that and, trained, and then trained them and instructed them in what they needed to do um, to follow the kind of righteousness that we see in Nehemiah and his team. As far as your fellow Christian, he says, or your fellow man, or your neighbor are concerned, there is a rule, a higher rule than law. Love one another rule. Love your fellow man, he says. Love your neighbor. So we say to the lawbreakers, this higher principle does not remove the obligations of the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, or whatever other commandment there may be, are still and will always be required. You can't get past them, even though you may say, grace, 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 it's all grace. The laws are still there because they embody the rule of love. They give form. They are the skeleton that keeps the body of love upright. Without the rules, it's just jelly. No backbone. They embody the rule of love. So you can't say, turn your back on them and say, grace tells me I don't need the law anymore. The rule is, love does no harm to its neighbor. So you say that to the, to the lawbreakers. But if that's all you've got, love does no harm, you've missed the other side of grace. We're strict law keepers. We do no harm. However... 
Without love, the law is not fulfilled. That's what he says twice in these verses, doesn't he? Um, For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. And then at the end of verse 10, love is the fulfillment of the law. What does fulfillment mean with regard to the law? Well, the law has a purpose. You thwart that purpose and foil that purpose if the law lacks love. Paul is saying, law law without love is incomplete, unfulfilled. Grace teaches us the higher rule of love to inform and uh, bring the destiny and perfection of the doing of all the commandments. Law without love is incomplete, it's unfulfilled, it hasn't quite yet reached its potential or the reason why it's there. Love with the rigorous obedience of the law, is affirmed and fulfilled by that love. What we see in Nehemiah 5, we see in Paul's teaching, um, love is the fulfillment of the law. It's the grace that we're seeing in Nehemiah. I just want to read you another passage which um, brings it away from Paul to Jesus. Um, 2 Corinthians 8 um, and verse 9 Page 1163, if you want to to flick it up. One short verse. He's talking about love in the context, but he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he were rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. I don't know how wealthy Nehemiah was, but he must have been fairly wealthy to provide one cow per week, choice sheep and hens, and all that wine for 12 years. No taxes. I imagine he was a lot poorer at the end of that than he was at the beginning. Though he were rich, he impoverished himself for the poor. He refused to take what was his due from them because the burdens were heavy. And here is this in Jesus supremely. As we were singing, Lord, you were rich beyond all splendor, yet for love's sake became poor. He impoverished himself of all his wealth and glory, going lower into poverty and the humiliation and the degradation and the powerlessness of poverty than any poor person has ever done so that as he was diving deeper and deeper into our sinfulness bearing that on the cross as he is raised to life we with him are raised to riches in Christ he comes to the depths even below where we are in our poverty that he might raise us up with him to share his wealth this is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he were rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What we see in Nehemiah's grace, we see supremely in our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true and greater Nehemiah. He was the governor not of a tiny province at the edge of an empire, but the governor of the universe. And yet, in reverence to the Father, did not grab his rights, but gave himself to serve those under great burdens. He made himself nothing, he who was everything. He emptied himself, he who was the fullness of God. He took the very nature of a servant, he whom angels served. He did not come as the banking institution to settle accounts with us, demand that we repay what we are due to God. He did not treat us as though he were simply transacting a business deal with clients. He chose rather to treat us as though we were his family. He identified himself with us. You are mine. He was not ashamed to call his people brothers. Sharing our flesh and blood, saying, family, you are mine. We who are aliens and strangers brought into the family of God. 
He did not come to make a profit for himself, but to take upon himself all our debts. Let's think about some of those debts. We have two separate accounts before God the judge. There is the bad deed account and the good deed account. Some people foolishly used to say to me, I know I've done a few bad things in life. The bad debt account is not looking too good. But you know, I've done quite a few good things and maybe the, what I've accrued in the good deed account will pay off some of the debt in the bad deed account. I don't think I've got too much to worry. People have said that kind of thing to me. It's foolish because they don't realize you can never balance the book that way. We can't pay God off. Both of our accounts are in the red. We owe God for every sin and disobedience. It's his mercy we're not stoned. It's his mercy we're not struck dead. It's his grace that we still stand and breathe. But we also owe God many good things we have failed to do. We've lost the opportunity to be loving and kind and generous, helpful. There is a list of our failed good deeds almost as long as the list of our bad deeds. Both accounts are in the red. And we're helpless. We can make a great outcry, but we're helpless. Jesus has taken all our debt. And paid for us in full. That's one of the things redemption means. To pay the debt and set you free. He has redeemed us from all our debts. As the scripture says we are redeemed by his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood. The price to pay our debt. Says Paul. Is bloodshed. His life was taken from him. That's what shed means. It's not a transfusion. It's not a a donation of blood that he gave and he kept the rest of it. It was taken from him with violence, leading to death. Not just a little, everything. All his lifeblood was the payment of our debts. In the words of one old writer, look at Jesus' empty purses, empty wallets, his empty veins. Jesus has paid it all. He didn't just forgo his livelihood for the sake of his family. He gave up his life for his family. Humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. Nehemiah restored the inheritances of the people when he made them promise to give it all back. Jesus is the true and greater Nehemiah. He not only pays our debts, he gives us an inheritance that we have never earned and can't Um, work for. Um, Nehemiah restored the vineyards and fields and olive groves and houses. He brought about an inheritance in the kingdom of Artaxerxes. Jesus gives us an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He teaches us to pray every day, our Father in heaven, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Who is the king of the kingdom of God? Jesus says, pray every day to the Father who is the King, who sits on the throne. Pray that, knowing that one day that prayer will be answered and his will will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. In Jesus, we receive an inheritance. Partly in this life, but mostly in the new heavens and the new earth, when God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. An inheritance he's paid for with blood. He has promised and given us a guarantee of, says Paul, a down payment of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So, look at how he brought about Nehemiah, the restoration of the inheritance. There was a solemn amen with praising as the people did as they were promised. Jesus is the amen in whom are found all the promises of God. Have you received Jesus in all his grace? I've been praying that tonight for some of you it might be the beginning of a new life in Jesus. 
But maybe you've fallen away from grace. Perhaps you began to walk with the Spirit, but you're now limping along with the broken crutch of the law, wondering where your joy has gone and your power has gone. You're doing the outward things of the Christian walk, but there's no life behind it, no joy behind it. You've lost grace. Find Jesus again and all his grace. Maybe you're neither of these things. You are a friend of Jesus. You're walking with Jesus. You know what grace is, but you've just stagnated. The Christian walk for you is the same old, same old. Out twice on a Sunday, out to the prayer meeting, out to the Bible study, out to um, OMF prayer meeting or the book group or whatever it is, and on and on it goes. Not too much to bring you down, not too much to bring you up. There is more grace for you to receive. More and more of Jesus for you to understand what I hope tonight has done, even just a little bit, is to awaken a thirst for Jesus and his grace. Tonight, a night for change, a night for life, a night for grace. Let's pray. May we have the attitude of Jesus, that mindset, though he were in very nature. God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, making, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself to death, even death on a cross. And following that, the exaltation of God the Father to his right hand. He who went down so low has risen so high ascended to your right hand is ever praying for us and longing and yearning that we might know more of his grace in joy and service and sacrifice and worship and fruitfulness let that be so heavenly father in jesus name amen we're going to sing our final item of praise may the mind of Christ my saviour please remain standing for the benediction
Let's say the grace to one another. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.